I'm happy to be with you this morning. It's Mother's Day, as you know, and Dave wanted the A-team here, and so he asked me to preach. And so I think I should say something profound about mothers, since we're doing a series on the Apostles' Creed. There's no, not a whole lot about mothers in the Apostles' Creed. You may, you may have noticed that. So let me say something profound about mothers. I consider mothers to be the highest of God's creation. And grandmothers are just a smidge above. <laughs> but we thank all of you who are mothers, and we thank our mothers for the life we have. When I was in college, a friend of mine came to me and said, hey, you want to go to a concert? And I said, sure. What is it? He says, well, you know, I'm taking this uh, music appreciation class, and I had this assignment to go hear the college orchestra play a symphony. And then I have to report back to class on it. And I said, hmm, I don't know much about classical music, but sure, I'll go. So we went, and the orchestra began to play. They played about five, six minutes, and then they stopped. So I began to applaud. And I looked around, and nobody else was applauding, and my friend is nudging me and saying, hey, uh, this is a symphony. And symphonies usually have four movements. And I said, so what's a movement? He said, well, it, it's a part of, of the symphony, and, and generally there's four of them. And the courtesy is you don't, you don't applaud in between the movements. You wait until the end, and you applaud for the, the entire symphony. So later on, I learned about symphonies and found out, indeed, he was right. A symphony is a piece of music that's generally written for a full orchestra, and it has four movements, generally. And so the movements, then, are a repetition of the theme. If I were to go, da-da-da-dum, what would that be? Anyone? Beethoven's Fifth Symphony, yes, that's the theme. Well, every symphony has a theme, but the difference is in the movements is that the composer changes the tempo in each of the movements. Well, as I look at the Apostles' Creed, I see movements. I certainly see them in Scripture. There is a written symphony in Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 11, that has two movements, Jesus' descent and Jesus' ascent. So look for those movements as we read Philippians chapter 2, beginning at verse 5. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped, but took uh, uh, equality with God something to be used of his own advantage, different translation than the one I memorized, sorry. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself, here's the descent, became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord, 
to the glory of God the Father. This is the word, <clears throat> this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Now, with the scripture in mind, with the ascent and descent, let's turn our thoughts to the Apostles' Creed. Unlike Philippians 2, the middle section of the Creed has three movements. Jesus' descent, Jesus' ascent, and then Jesus' last descent. The first movement, Jesus' descent. The movement begins with the phrase, I believe in Jesus Christ, His only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit. So this wasn't some special angel who came from God's throne to get muddled in this human muddle puddle. This is a reference to divine nature. He is everything God is. Everything God the Almighty is. When it says God's Son, that isn't a biological reference. It is saying, as Paul said in the letter to the Colossians, He is the image or the exact likeness of the God the Father Almighty. So this tells us that God didn't remain hidden in the far reaches of the universe in some black hole. But he came to earth in his son, Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Some say he pitched his tent among us and lived among us. Some say he moved into the neighborhood. And what I say is if you want to know, Je- if you want to know God, you look into the face of Jesus and there you find God. We name this act of God in the incarnation, uh, taking human flesh, the incarnation in flesh. And it's a central doctrine of our Christian faith. And that's why the creed spends so much time on Jesus. The middle portion is the longest because it's so vital, it's so important. It's, it's, it's the bedrock of our faith that Jesus took on human flesh. But we have trouble with it. I know I do. I mean, how can a, a, a God become human? And how did he keep the, the different natures from overemphasizing one over the other or one having more power than the other? And it's difficult for us to understand that any theologian, Soren Kierkegaard, who lived in uh, early 1800s, uh, 1800s to 1855, He dealt with this subject extensively, but in one of his meditations, an easier to read book that I read, he tells an analogy that I think helps. It helps me anyway, trying to get a handle on what does it mean that God became human in Jesus Christ. So I hope it helps you. It's a parable of a king who one day is riding his great uh, war horse through the village where he's king, where his castle is. And he spies a beautiful young maiden that he'd never seen before. He didn't know who she was. But he keeps riding on through the village. But he becomes almost obsessed with her because her beauty was so outstanding. He decides, I want her to be my queen. And he thought, how can I get her to be the queen? Well, I know. I'll simply command it. I'm the king, she's a loyal subject, she must obey the commands of the king. He thought about it for a moment, he said, she might become queen because she's a loyal subject, but will she love me? 
I want to be loved for myself and who I am, not because I commanded it. He says, that won't work. Then he thought, I know. I'll have a great parade to show off the wonder, the glory, the riches of my kingdom. I'll have the courtiers walk in front of me with big banners, waving them. And behind them will come the knights on their great war horses. And they'll have their lances and their swords and their shields all shimmering in silver. And I'll come behind with my great stallion as the trumpeteers announce and herald the coming of the king. And she'll see the wonder, the majesty, the glory, the riches, the power of my kingdom. And she'll want to be the queen. And then he thought, what if she becomes the queen for the wrong reasons? Because of the riches she would have, because of the power, and not because she loved me. So he decides that won't work. Then he comes up with a third way. He said, no, I'll put on, on the clothes of, of a peasant and I'll go in my dirty rags into the village and I'll work there and I'll try to win her love for myself. He thought, this is the most likely to work. But she may think after we're married and she finds out that I'm the king that I was deceptive and she would not trust me. He went through many reasons and then he finally said to himself that none would work. The only way he might possibly have her become his queen is he must abdicate his throne, give up all of his privileges and all of his wealth and become a peasant and live among the village. The writers of the creed continue to push this truth that God took on human flesh with a rush of phrases. Born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead and buried. And then the phrase that stops most of us, he descended into hell. And we say, wait, what? What does that mean? The cleaned up version is he descended to the dead. Now, there's a long explanation, scholarly explanation for what this is, but let me, let me try to, in my words, summarize it for you. I think what they're talking about here, the authors of the creed, is a reference to the Jewish idea of Sheol, S-H-E-O-L. And they consider that to be a dark, foreboding place where the dead went to await the resurrection, uh, bodily resurrection. It wasn't a pleasant place, not where you'd want to spend even one night, but it could not prevent the love of God from penetrating it. And so Jesus went to Sheol to preach to the dead that the resurrection was coming. Peter, in his first epistle, alludes to this when he writes, And it was by the Spirit that he went to preach to the spirits in prison. So we see now the descent of Jesus. It has its tragic, dark climax in the tomb. But not all is lost. And we move to the second movement, Jesus' ascent. This is a movement with two parts, the resurrection and the ascension. 
And let me describe the resurrection a little differently for you. At Jesus' death, Satan thought he had done his finest work. God and goodness were defeated. He'd used his most powerful weapon to defeat goodness and God, death. It is as though Satan had won the prize. Satan was there at the, at the uh, crucifixion in disguise. And he sees a finely wrapped package at the foot of the cross and he surreptitiously and uh, sneakily goes up to the cross and picks it up, smugly puts it into his cloak and takes it home. And he puts it into a safe for safekeeping. But what Satan didn't know was the package had within it a time bomb that exploded the third day after Jesus' death. It destroyed the safe and the wall it was in. It blew a hole in the great wall that led into a prison and all the prisoners were able to escape. Did you know the most common depiction of the resurrection in the earliest church art, the earliest first Christians that did art, is not an empty tomb. That's how we display it. And that's accurate. That's right. But the earliest Christians depicted Jesus' resurrection as coming out of an empty tomb as Christos Victor. That Jesus is breaking out of hell because he's defeated Satan. He was and is Christos Victor the conqueror of evil, death, and hell. And this brings us to the second part of the second movement in the Creed Symphony. Forty days after the resurrection, Jesus ascended into heaven. Jesus broke out of Satan's prison, showing the supreme power of God in Jesus Christ. And Jesus ascends and sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty, in the Eastern, ancient Near Eastern society, the right hand was the hand of the sword. And how did you keep order in your kingdom? You wield the sword. And so it was considered the place of authority, the right hand. And if someone sits at the right hand of the king, that means the king has given him or her the authority to wield the sword. And the Apostles' Creed says he ascended into heaven the third, third day he rose from the dead. He ascended into heaven and he sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. God hands to Jesus his authority. He is God in human flesh. So he sits at the right hand of God but Jesus' work is not done. He returned to earth, as the creed says, to judge the quick, the living, and the dead. The third movement is a movement of descent. This is Jesus' last descent to earth. Jesus will come to earth again to do two things at once. To judge the living and the dead and to create a new heaven and a new earth. God's judgment has some trouble. Some of us have difficulty with it. It just doesn't seem fair that a loving, merciful God would bring judgment. Scripture is clear, however. There is a last judgment. 
But its nature is shrouded in ancient picture language that is foreign to us. And it's hard to come to a clear understanding and know and rely upon what that judgment really will be like. How will God do it? But one thing we know for sure, we must rely upon the fact that the judgment will be consistent with God's character and nature of love and mercy. Whatever that last judgment is, it will be done in accordance with the character of God. So we leave the judgment of God to the good shepherd. It is not our job to separate the sheep from the goat. C.S. Lewis has written that God honors our choices and here's where it comes down to us personally God honors our choices if we choose to live without the thought of an allegiance to God the Father Almighty God will honor our choice and we will live forever outside the presence of God but there's a brighter and more beautiful Side to Jesus' return as our Lord. Jesus will descend once again, but this time it will be to create a new heaven and a new earth. In the beginning of Revelation 21, John sees a vision of a new heaven and a new earth. And usually I wouldn't read the whole thing, but this is so beautiful and so important that I want to read John 21, 1 through 5. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the former heaven and the former earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling is here with humankind. He will dwell with them, and they will be his God, or they will be his people. God himself will be with them as their God. And listen very carefully, because here's the vision of what God has in store for us. He will be present with us. We will be his people. He will be our God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death will be no more. There will be no mourning, crying, or pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. Then the one seated on the throne, who by the way is Jesus, said, look, I'm making all things new. That's a vision of the future that is uncertain for all of us, that I can live with. Knowing that's the end. This gives us hope in our veil of tears. So what is the takeaway? Well, first of all, the takeaway is to understand and realize that the Apostles' Creed is saying that the Lord God Almighty is Jesus Christ. They are one. Jesus just came to earth and took on human flesh. So how do we respond to that? We respond with a joyful response of thanksgiving. And God sees that joyful response of thanksgiving by how we live our lives. We are kingdom people who live with kingdom values. 
as a response to God's great goodness to us. So we see here in the creed and in scripture, Jesus' movement. He came down to earth and took on human flesh, suffered and died. He rose again, ascended to the Father where he reigns, the right hand of God the Almighty. But he's coming back to create a new kingdom where we will live without tears. That's something we can rejoice in. That's something that we can live out in the values of the kingdom. Amen. Let us pray. Gracious God, we trust that you have quieted all voices but your own. So that you have heard, we have heard your word through scripture, through the Apostles' Creed. And now that you will give us the ability, the willingness to go from here and to live out this faith, trusting the Lord God Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord. For this we give you thanks. In Christ our Lord's name. Amen.